Revelation 19. We are coming to the end of the book of Revelation. A couple more weeks. I don't know how far we're going to get tonight, but I don't want to rush through it. There's too much good stuff, so we'll see how far we get. We might get to the second coming. We might not. We might, it might hold off till next week. That's right. So, if there was ever a passage of Scripture that could be literally labeled the Hallelujah Chorus, if you will, it's this passage we're looking at tonight. I want you to notice in verse 1, the word Hallelujah. In verse 3, the word Hallelujah. In verse 4, the word hallelujah. And in, the ver- in verse 6, the word hallelujah. This is the only time in the whole New Testament that this word is used. And it's used all four times right here in Revelation 19. The only times it's used in the New Testament. And it's used all four times here in this passage. That's significant. And remember we said from last week, the the word hallelujah literally means you all praise Jah. And Jah obviously is short for Jehovah, the covenant name of God. Whether you want to say praise God or praise the Lord or praise ye the Lord, it's hallelujah. And, And the hallelujahs are going up here in Revelation chapter 19. Notice in verse 1, after these things, I heard what sounded like the loud voice of a vast throng, a multitude in heaven, the place of worship, saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And now, primarily here at the beginning of Revelation 19, why is God being praised? He's being praised for the righteous judgment of, of this a uh, great prostitute Babylon that represents this godless system that has infiltrated and, and pervaded the world, if you will, uh, against God and in opposition to God. And God is righteously judging this system. Remember something. This is something that's emphasized throughout the book of Revelation. Only God knows the breadth and depth of the sin that he now judges. You and I don't even know the depth and breadth of the sin that exists in the world. And he's been very patient, but there is coming because he's a righteous God, a time of judgment. So notice in verse 2, he's being praised because his judgments are true and just. We must always remember that. The severity of his judgments is a testimony to his righteousness. And then he goes on to say, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted, who ruined, who destroyed the earth with her sexual immorality, her idolatry. And he's also done this. He's also avenging the blood of his servants poured out by her own hands. Notice it is God who shall avenge his servants, not themselves. Even in the book of Romans. We read from Paul that we are never to take vengeance or retaliation upon ourselves. We are to give place to God's wrath. It's not 
that, that justice is not going to be done. It's just God is saying, let me handle it. Let me do it. I'll do it the right way and I'll do it in my time. Give place to God's wrath, Paul says in Romans chapter 12. And here again, this is coming. God is going to vindicate and avenge his servants who have been the prime target of the enemy throughout history. Verse 3, the second time the crowd shouted, Hallelujah! And the smoke is presently rising from her, this uh, great prostitute, forever and ever. John is reminding us her destruction is permanent. It has eternal ramifications. What John here is describing in Revelation is so important because it reminds us about the gravity, if you will, of eternity. We need to remember that even as believers. That even if our future is secure in Jesus Christ and we know where we are going when we die, there still has to be that gravity of eternity that grips us and literally directs our steps throughout this life. Because what we do in this life is going to determine our role and responsibility and our service throughout eternity. It's that important. And so John is reminding us of this even in those words there. Verse 4, the 24 elders that I believe are representative of the church and the four living creatures threw themselves to the ground and worshiped God. Again, Revelation is a book of worship. Again, let me remind you that word worship here means to fall upon one's knees as an expression of profound reverence and respect. That is true worship. A worship of submission, a worship of surrender, a worship that says, I will follow God. You lead. That's true worship of God. That's true expression of reverence and respect. And notice he was seated on the throne saying, Amen, truly, hallelujah, praise God. Then a voice came from the throne saying again, You all praise our God. Sing to honor God. It's an imperative command. We don't know exactly, is this voice God's voice? Is it an angel's voice? We don't know. But this voice is commanding people at this point, sing to honor God. There's not going to be any Christians up in, up in heaven who go to God. God, I don't feel like singing. I don't feel like worship. Yeah, I'm not a worshiper. I don't sing. Not, not, not in this context. <laughs> You're not. That's why we're trying to get you all on board now. So that when you get there, you won't be like, <gasps> in shock. Praise our God, all his servants, and all who fear him. And by the way, I love this. The word fear means reverence and respect, but there's also a meaning in the Greek language of affection there, too. It's an affectionate respect and reverence for God. It's sort of the same. Again, I I don't want to completely wrap this together, but... It's sort of the same concept that the Bible teaches children should properly have for their parents. That there should be a reverence and respect, but also obviously an affection along with it. And the same thing is true with God's children, with our Heavenly Father. There should always be a reverence and respect, but there should also be an affection there. He is our Father. We cry, Abba, to Him. 
And I love this. John includes both the small and the great. The company of the redeemed knows no boundaries. There's going to be, as we've already learned in the book of Revelation, people from every tribe, every language, every nation, every country, you name it. They're going to be there. And some of the greats are going to be there. Some, but, but we're all who have accepted Christ. We're all going to be there together. And then in verse 6, notice this. Then I heard what John says sounded like the voice of a vast throng, a large multitude, like the roar of many waters. I've been to Niagara Falls. In fact, I used to not live too far from Niagara Falls. If you ever been to Niagara Falls, you know what the thunder and the roar of water can sound like. And that's nothing compared to this sound. And he says, this sound also sounds like loud crashes of thunder. Notice what John is describing here. He's describing the loud, enthusiastic praise that is going to resonate throughout heaven. When we get to heaven, there's not going to be, praise God. Notice here, John says, I am listening to this multitude of people down through history, lifting up their voices, and it is unbelievably loud and enthusiastic. They are engaged. That's how we should be. And look, is heaven going to be at times... A quiet, peaceful existence? Absolutely. There's something precious, the Bible says, about, you know, some quiet times. And God's going to allow that throughout eternity as well. But there's going to be times where, for those of you that have a hard time with anything loud, all I can tell you is you're going to have your glorified ears at that point, so it shouldn't bother you. Because I can tell you this. When we get to heaven... And we are there with that vast multitude of the saints down through the ages, and we are lifting up our voices. There's not going to be any holding back. Everybody's going to be cutting loose, and they're going to be singing to the top of their lungs, and they're going to be shouting, and they're going to be engaged, and they're going to be enthusiastic because they're with God, and they are there in His presence, and there is nothing but praise going to be flowing out of them. And again, I don't know how many of you ever had the opportunity, but some of my most vivid memories are those where I've been with, with groups of Christians and where, I mean, just hundreds or thousands at a time and just not afraid to lift up their voices. And, and there's just something just, it just... Wow, about all those voices coming together and praising the Lord. I, I remember, it's been a while ago, but I went to a pastor's conference at Moody Church in Chicago, and there was nothing but men. Eight to nine hundred of us men and pastors in the Moody Auditorium there in Chicago, just singing out to the Lord. And there's something about a group of men. And I can remember that. And then I remember the time I was in Times Square at David Wilkerson's church, right there in the heart of New York City, and, and listening to that church of thousands just praise God. I, it literally gave me shivers. 
And I think about that in this context. I think, if that gave me shivers, what am I going to be like when I get to heaven? And all the redeemed of all the ages are there, and we are just lifting up our voices, and we are praising the Lord. They were shouting, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the all-powerful, reigns. Now, some are going to say, well, they're, they're praising God for Him reigning, but doesn't God reign now? Yes. God absolutely is always in control. He's absolutely sovereign. He's always reigning. But remember, in this context, the praise is coming because man's day has come to an end. And God's day now has started on the earth. That now is that His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the word reign has the meaning of exercising the highest influence. And so what, what John here is reminding us of is, right now on earth, God doesn't exercise the highest influence in most people's lives. And he, you know, most people don't consult God, or He's not the primary influencer of the way they live their lives, and how they make choices and decisions, and direct their steps of living. But John is saying that there's coming a day, even on earth, during the kingdom. When Jesus Christ, His Word, His will, His thoughts, they will exercise the highest influence on earth. And that's going to be a great day. Because man can't rule the earth. He just can't. Man in his fallen nature, even as a redeemed, is incapable of ruling the earth. Only Jesus Christ can rule the earth in perfect righteousness and justice. And that's why he's going to come one day. So, verse 7, let us rejoice exceedingly. Let us exalt and be exceedingly glad and give him glory, his honor, his proper acknowledgement, his due. And here's the next thing that they're really praising God for in Revelation 19. The first thing was his righteous judgment upon the great prostitute and her influence and all of that. His righteous judgment has come. But now there's something else that they're so excited about. And that is that the marriage or the wedding celebration of the Lamb has come. Now to give this meaning here, let's remember... uh, The context of this, it's coming from a Jewish cultural mindset. And in a Jewish culture, there are two aspects to a marriage. There's the betrothal period. That's sort of what the Gospels talk about with Joseph and Mary. They were betrothed. And in that betrothal period, they are obliged to each other. They need to be faithful to each other as if they were literally living together and married. But in a Jewish culture betrothal, they're not together yet. They're betrothed to each other, but they're not together yet. The wedding takes place sometime later whenever the bridegroom leaves his home and with some very close friends, they they have a procession over to the bride's house. They pick up the bride and all of her family and friends, and then they come back to the bridegroom's house for this great party and celebration and what we would call a wedding reception. 
And that's what's happening here. That's why everyone's so excited. Because when you and I accepted Christ as our Savior, in a sense, that was our betrothal period. We are betrothed to each other. But we haven't joined our bridegroom yet. And he's coming to get us from his house to where we are, and then to take us back to be in his house where he is, and then have this great party when we get there. And that's why they're so excited. You see, you and I are in this chapter, by the way. So you'll remember this chapter one day when you get there, because you'll say, yeah, Pastor Jeff told us that. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> and, and the wedding celebration is, is speaking about this festival. Listen. It's the biggest party, celebration, feast, banquet, call it whatever you want, that Jewish people have, even to this day. Their biggest celebration and party is when a wedding takes place, the bridegroom goes, picks up the bride, brings the bride and all her family and friends back to the bridegroom's house, and at the bridegroom's house, there is an unbelievable days after days after days of celebration and feasting and that's what makes the miracle at Cana that Jesus did at the wedding feast so significant because it's such a significant thing and they're happy because finally folks finally 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 we see and we we become there with our bridegroom that we've been waiting for for so long to be with Jesus and in contrast to say our culture where in a wedding The bride is the focus of all attention. In this context, the bridegroom is the focus of all attention. He's the one that gets the attention. We, as his bride, are finally going to be joined to our bridegroom, and what a day that will be. Think about it. We're going to see Jesus, our bridegroom, in all of his glory. Now notice what it says. His bride has made herself ready. That's a challenge to each of us as Christians. Because what John is reminding us of is now this life as a saint of God, this life as a Christian is supposed to be lived in preparation to meet our bridegroom. You all that have been through weddings, you know how much preparation is involved. In fact, we're getting ready to have a wedding here this weekend of Elliot and Megan on Saturday. I love doing weddings. It's one of the joys of being a pastor, joining two believers together. But there's a lot of preparation involved. And, and you know... Even on earth, we we want everything to be just right at a wedding. And what we need to remind ourselves of is John is teaching us something very important here. And that is that once we become a Christian, we are to live our lives preparing ourselves to meet Jesus. To meet our bridegroom and stand before him. In fact, notice he goes on to say, she, the bride of Christ, you and I, Christians, 
was permitted to be dressed in bright, shining, magnificent, clean, pure, fine linen. It speaks of the very best. And this is created, if you will, in heaven for us. Obviously, we can't take a garment from earth up to heaven. It's going to be there when we get there. But it's also, notice John says, not just created in heaven for us, but it's also created on earth by us. Notice what he says. For the fine linen, the very best garment that we're going to wear to this wedding celebration is the righteous deeds of the saints. Don't miss that, folks. That's an incentive for every Christian to live a faithful, committed, devoted Christian life. And here's what John is teaching. Works or deeds do not get us to heaven. We are saved by faith. And we are saved only by God's grace. But after we become a Christian... Obviously, every Christian can live their, choose to live their Christian life differently. And that's why, though, that, you know, obviously every true Christian will be in heaven, not every Christian is going to be dressed alike. There's going to be degrees of reward and responsibility and service and roles and even different garments that everybody's going to wear because not everybody is going to have the same righteous deeds to adorn themselves with for this wedding celebration that everyone else has. We create our own wedding garment for this time. Created in heaven, but also created by us on earth. What kind of garment do we want to wear? It's a question only we can answer. And that's why I try to get Christians who just say, well... I'm just happy that I'm going to be there. That's all that matters is I'm just going to get to heaven. I'm like, you don't understand. Yes, we are all saved by grace through faith. And it's not of works, lest anyone should boast. We're going to talk about that Sunday out of Romans. But after we're saved, after we're saved, our life is going to be evaluated by Jesus one day. And based upon how we've lived our life, that's going to determine what we do for all of eternity. And some Christians are going to go, man, I'm spending a lot of eternity. I wish I would have done more now to set myself up for eternity. Because they don't realize that our lives today will impact eternity. Not where we spend it. That's just faith in Jesus Christ alone. But how we spend our Christian life, you see. And that's what John wants us to realize. It's going to be a great celebration. and Everybody's going to be celebrating. Don't get me wrong. There's not going to be anybody there not celebrating. We're all going to be happy to be there, glad to be there. But I think there's going to be many Christians who once they get there would have wished that they would have done more for the Savior while they were here. Been more faithful. Because remember what Jesus even taught in the parables. He said, if you take what I give you, whatever I've distributed to, whatever resources, whatever I've done, and, and you've invested in eternity, then here's what I'm going to do for you. And Jesus is going to say, well done, good, and what? Faithful servant. And that's what John's talking about here. 
Verse 9, then the angel said to me, write the following, blessed, happy are those who are invited to the banquet, the Messiah's feast at the wedding celebration of the Lamb. By the way, here's something really cool too. The word invited means to be called by name. You go to a wedding now, reception, one of the first things you you do is you look for a place card on a table. Because one of the embarrassing things would be, "Uh uh-oh, they don't have a place for me. See, that's not going to happen. God's going to have a place card for each one of us that knows Jesus as our Savior. And He's going to invite us to this great feast of His, this great celebration, by name. Jesus knows you. He knows you. And he's going to be so glad to finally see you and wrap his arms around you and give you a hug and say, Welcome home, child. Welcome home. I don't know about you, makes me want to go now. (laughs) Yeah. Blessed are those who are invited to the banquet at the wedding celebration of the Lamb. And, And listen. This same word is translated in the, in the Old Testament in, in that Psalm 23 to describe that same sort of Messiah's feast or banquet table whenever the psalmist David writes in Psalm 23 that he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. A Messiah's feast. He's reminding us of, you know, when God lays out a table for us of his provision, It's not skimpy little leftovers. It's a feast. And God wants us to come to his table and feast on his provision every day to fill our soul and to be filled. He also said to me, these are the true words of God. I love that. John is saying, the the word true here means reality. John is saying, guys, I know this seems like too good to be true. But this is really going to happen. We're really going to be in this one day. This is not a dream we're going to wake up from and go, oh, that, that Pastor Jeff, he was just off of it a little bit. Yeah. No, I'm not making this up. And John's not making this up. John says, this is really going to happen. We're going to be in Revelation 19 one day and we're going to remember it. We're going we're gonna to remember, we're singing hallelujah. We're praising God. We're in this vast multitude who's praising God for the destruction of the great prostitute and for the, the millennial kingdom to come. And, and now we're in the wedding celebration. We're meeting our bridegroom. We're feasting at the Messiah's feast. And, and, and we're going to remember all this. And it's not too good to be true because God promised us this. And it's as real as anything is real. And God wants us to remember that. Now, I love this because it makes me feel good. Because sometimes I I just get a little excited. And sometimes I can be like a, a kid almost and get caught up in the moment. This makes me feel good because here's the Apostle John who gets so caught up in the moment. Look what he does. He throws himself down and begins to worship this angel. Now, John should know better, right? But he's so excited. He's like, I gotta, I gotta do something. Yeah. And he goes down. And the angel's like, No, 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 don't do this. 
I'm only a fellow servant with you and your brothers. I'm a colleague. Don't worship me. Get up. In fact, that can I just? It's one of the one of the ways you and I can know whether an angel, especially in the Old Testament, when it's the phrase is used of the angel of the Lord that I believe is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. You will know it's Jesus Christ whenever whoever is worshiping him is allowed to worship him and doesn't say, oh, don't worship me, I'm just an angel. When angels are being worshipped, they immediately, like, no, don't do that, I'm not the one you're supposed to worship. But when the angel of the Lord is being worshipped, he accepts worship, because he's God. He's Jesus Christ appearing in the Old Testament. So John says, I threw myself down at his feet to worship him, but he said, don't do this. I'm only a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony about Jesus. And then notice what this, I love this, this is important. He says, worship God for the testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. John is saying, listen, all these predictions about Jesus and and Jesus ruling and reigning and, and as king of kings and lord of lords, he says this is the essence of all of these predictions that are to fill and govern our soul as Christians. This is the spirit of prophecy. It's all about the revelation of Jesus. That's what this book is about. It is about revealing Jesus to us, uncovering, unveiling who he really is. That he's not the humble servant who came to let men put him on a cross. That he is now the King of kings and Lord of lords above all and before all. And this, this, should, this should be what guides us every day. This is the spirit of why God predicted all this and shared it and revealed it to us so that we would have that that hope and that inspiration every day that whatever we're dealing with here on earth, the best is yet to come and we are moving towards a great day. We are moving towards a day where Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign. He's going to exercise the highest influence. Things are going to be right one day. We're going to be vindicated in our faith and all of this is going to come one day. It's real, my friend. Let it inspire you. That's why God revealed it. Well, you know what? I'm going to go on. I didn't know whether I was going to get to this or not, and we might not get through all of it. But let's get to verse 11. I think that what we're coming into now, for me personally, is probably the most incredible passage of Scripture in all the Word of God. If someone was to say, what's the greatest chapter in the Bible? Boy, you know, there's, you know, there's the chapters on the birth of Christ. There's the chapters on the creation of the world. There's obviously the chapters on the crucifixion of Christ. There's the chapters on the resurrection of Christ. But for me, it's the second coming. That's when Jesus comes to rule and reign. So John says, I saw heaven opened. And here came a white horse. And the one riding it was called Faithful and True. 
He bears the title of being trustworthy, reliable, genuine, and sincere. John is saying, listen, everything that he said, everything that he's promised, you can bank on it. You can count on it. He is faithful and true. And my friends, tonight, when you lay your head on that pillow and tomorrow when you get up, you remind yourself, Jesus Christ is faithful and true. I can stake my life on him. I can stake my eternity on him. I can stake anything on him. He is faithful and he is true. And then he goes on to say, with justice, with rightness, he judges. And guess what? He goes to war. Because there's times where you need to fight for what's right. And Jesus takes no pleasure in laying aside the inhabitants of the earth who are worshiping the Antichrist and who have rejected him time and again, but he's got to remove them in order to set up his millennial kingdom on earth. Notice the description here. Much different than the way we picture Jesus while here on earth the first time, isn't he? His eyes are like a fiery flame, and there are many diadem crowns on his head. Literally, kingly ornaments that are emblems of absolute sovereignty. He doesn't just have one crown, he has many crowns. Why? Because he's the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords who's coming. And he has a name written that no one knows except himself. Don't miss that. Jesus, even in this revealed state where we're going to see him, there's still going to be throughout eternity some mystery there. Why? Because God is infinite. And even when we get to heaven, there's always going to be things about God that no creation of God can ever truly grasp and fathom. Will many of our questions be answered? Absolutely. But there will always be things about God that remain a mystery because that's what separates who God is from everything else that He created. Only Jesus will know what this name is. No one else. He is dressed in clothing dipped in blood and He is called the Word of God. And now in verse 14, here we are. Here we come. The armies, the band of soldiers that are in heaven dressed in white, clean, fine living. We're following Him on white horses. I always wanted to ride a white horse. Now listen, as we're going to see here in a minute, We're not following him, and we're not described as an army because somehow Jesus needs us to be there. He takes care of things himself. We're just sort of there to see it all unfold. From his mouth, verse 15, extends a sharp sword so that with it he can strike the nations. Notice, Christ conquers by the power of his word. The Word of God is powerful. It brought this universe into existence. And one day it will strike and cut down all the enemies of Jesus Christ. He doesn't have to do anything. He simply has to speak His Word. 
That's the power of the Word of Christ. And then the Bible says He will rule them with an iron rod. Now, interestingly, the word rule means to govern, but it's a very interesting word in the Greek language. It literally means to shepherd. Poema. He's going to shepherd people. And when it says he will rule them with an iron rod, it's going to be iron. It's going to be firm. But the word rod here literally means a shepherd's staff. He's still going to be the shepherd, even though he's going to be in control, absolute control. He's not coming at this like worldly, earthly leaders do. He's coming at this leadership of the world as a loving shepherd. See? He will always be that loving shepherd. But before he begins to lead the world, notice he has to stomp the winepress of the furious wrath of God, the righteous wrath and passion of God, the all-powerful. This verse was the verse that inspired the gal who wrote the battle hymn of the Republic. I get to say some of it. You know it was written during the Civil War, right? So, This is where she got... Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of His terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. This is where she got this from. Revelation chapter 19. He has a name written on his clothing and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the one above all. He is the one before all. Then I saw one angel standing in the sun. He shouted in a loud voice to all the birds flying high in the sky, Come, gather around for the great banquet of God. Now this isn't the same word that's used for the wedding celebration. This is a word that's used for the evening meal. And it's descriptive of the fact that man's day is coming to an end. In a sense, the sun is going down. This is the final meal for man, if you will. To eat your fill of the flesh of kings, the flesh of generals, the flesh of powerful people, the flesh of horses, those who ride them, and the flesh of all people, both free and slave and small and great. And notice the repetition of the word flesh here. And why is that important? Because these people have not lived for the spirit or spiritual things. They have lived for the flesh. And what does Paul say in Galatians chapter 6, verse 8? He says, those who live to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but those who live of the Spirit will by the Spirit reap eternal life. These people have not lived for the Spirit. They've lived for the flesh. And because of that, there's nothing left. It will all be consumed. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, verse 19, and their armies assembled to do battle. Are you kidding me? This shows us, if we've never had a better picture in Scripture, this shows us what I call the insanity of sin. Where man has gotten so whacked out in his fatally flawed way of thinking that we've been talking about even from the book of Romans, that man somehow thinks he can fight God and win? Yeah. It's the same warped feeling that Lucifer had When he said after he fell, I will be like the Most High. No, you won't. You're just messed up. 
Because that's what sin does. When, when, when sin comes into our life, it affects our thinking. Which is why I said we need to have our mind renewed every day. Because our thinking can start to get warped, even for those of us who follow Christ and want to follow Christ. Imagine those that totally reject any divine influence in their life, how warped their thinking gets. And these last people on earth somehow think that they're going to do battle against Jesus Christ, this one we've just talked about, and somehow they're going to come out on top? Yeah, they, they actually do think that. That's one of the sad things about sin. Paul says in 2 Timothy that, that people who sin not only deceive others, but they're self-deceived. That's the worst kind of deception. They do battle with the one who rode the horse and with his army. Now the beast was seized, and along with him the false prophet who had performed the signs on his behalf, signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And God has a special place, if you will, not just for them, but a special timing. Because of their great influence during the tribulation period, the Antichrist and false prophet will actually be thrown even before Satan into the lake of fire. Both of them were thrown, notice, alive, living and breathing into the lake of fire, continually burning with sulfur. And then everyone else was killed by the sword that, notice, extended from the mouth of the one who rode the horse. Christ conquers by the power of his word. And all the birds gorged themselves with their flesh. Next week, we talk in chapter 20 about this millennial kingdom. Let me say this. I want to just set this up for just a second. I believe that the millennial kingdom, this thousand year literal reign of Christ on earth, is the most unique time ever in history. And we're going to be right smack dab in the middle of it. And here's one of the reasons why it's going to be unique. We're going to learn next week. Satan is going to be removed for the whole thousand years. But during that thousand years, you're going to have people who are glorified, like us, living here on earth, but you're also going to have people born during that thousand years who are not in their glorified bodies, who will live for hundreds and hundreds of years like they used to, you see. So you're going to have this strange mix of glorified beings and non-glorified beings all under the rule of Christ with Satan out of the way. It is the most unique time in history. And we're going to learn about this, what the Bible reveals about this time, and what part are we going to play as the saints of God in this thousand years. Hope you'll come back next week. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the truth, the reality of your word. And even though, Lord, for us as Christians, many times we read books like Revelation, and sometimes even to ourselves we think, that's just... There's no way that's actually going to happen that way. That, that's just too good to be true. That's got to be an exaggeration. Lord, help us to remember that if you said it, it's real. It will happen one day, just as you said. You are faithful and true. And God, you're coming to set aside all those who are not interested in you being their king. And you're going to set up your kingdom one day, literally on this earth. But Lord, even before that, we've learned tonight that for those of us who know you, Lord, one day we're going to be joined to our bridegroom. One day we're going to see you face to face. One day we're going to be able to just 
be in your presence. And just as the song said, we don't even know maybe how we're going to react or act or whatever, but God, it's just going to be more than we could ever imagine to finally lay our eyes on you, Jesus, the one who died for us and made this all possible. And God, you've reminded us tonight how we need to be diligent about living our Christian life. Because though the garment that we're going to wear to that wedding celebration is going to be created in heaven for us, it's also being created by us while we're here on earth. So Lord, may we be diligent in being servants of yours. May we put you first place in our lives. May you be the priority of our lives. May we worship you, Lord, each and every day. May this chapter, Lord, tonight encourage folks today of what we have to look forward to. The best is always yet to come. And remind us, Lord, again of this truth, that whatever we're going through down here on this earth, no matter how bad it is, is the only hell we'll ever know. And as Paul said, our momentary light affliction is working for us a far greater eternal weight of glory. And yet, God, for those that don't know Christ, whatever good that they can squeeze out of this life is the only piece of heaven that they'll ever know. Lord, may we be diligent in sharing our faith, inviting people to church, inviting them to, Lord, to into your word. Help us to influence others, Lord, in the days in which we live. Because I believe the time is short on this earth that we have. And I believe you're coming soon. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, have a great rest of the week. We'll see you on Sunday.